Hey everybody, welcome to another week of Startup Sales. Very excited to have today's guest, Mark Furstein, with us. He's been in sales for a long time and went from sales to management to director of sales and now is actually a founder of his own startup. So he's been through it all. He knows all stages of this process and it's really great. We're going to talk about where the future of sales are going. We even talk about a little bit of fundraising tips. We talk about managing an early stage sales team and some of the challenges and the, the things that could go wrong and how to, how to work with it. So it's a really good, impactful uh, episode. I hope you enjoy. And while you're listening here, if you're an early stage company and you're having problems with, you know, finding the right talent or interviewing and really struggling with that, this is one of the things that we help our our clients with. So feel free to reach out to us at startupsales.io. That's startupsales.io. And we'll be happy to discuss that with you. So anyways, let's get to today's episode with Mark. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, everybody. Before we get started in this episode, I know that you're eager to get going, but I wanted to ask for your help. We want to get the word out there more that uh, this podcast exists. So if you're finding value in this and you really are enjoying this, would you mind please sharing this with your colleagues or putting it on social media as much as you can so that we get the word out there and we could continue to deliver more and more content like this? Really appreciate your help and uh, thank you very much. All right, Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So can we, you give a little bit of background about who you are and what your experience is? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess almost for the last decade, about eight years or so, I've been pretty much in B2B SaaS sales, ranging from uh, you know starting at Citrix as an entry-level salesperson, moving through sales management, becoming a director of sales out in San Francisco at an early startup, moving into a VP of sales role, and then now launching Recapped.io about a year ago. Okay, excellent. You've done quite a bit there. What, what are some of the highlights of your, of your career? <sighs> Where to start? <laughs> Honestly, I, th- I still think about it all the time that some of the most fun I've had has been like in the pits when I was an SDR, still had Citrix, you know, cranking out 200 calls a day. I would never do it again. But that was probably the most fun I've had. And then obviously, you know, launching a company, getting some of our early users and hearing that feedback have also been the highlights. Yeah. I'm sure it also like keeps you grounded knowing where, where you came from. Because it's hard to imagine what an SDR goes through without having never put your feet on the ground. Now. Oh, absolutely. I think it's like one of the most underrated roles out there. And they, yeah. they don't get the recognition they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So off screen, we were talking about like the future of sales and I want to kind of just jump right into there and ask, where do you see the future of sales? Yeah, great question. So I I think we're going to see a lot of changes over the next couple of years. Right now we have all of these collaboration, you know, tools that are coming out, right? You have Envision, which is collaboration for designers. You have Notation and Notion and Asana and all these different like internal collaboration tools. 
I see sales being the next frontier of that, where buyers and sellers are going to have to collaborate together to drive those deals forward, especially in complex you know, enterprise deals. We're really going to see that. Obviously, some teams are already trying to do that, but I think that's really where the technology is going to enable us in the next couple of years. Okay. So can you dive in deeper into this and give some examples? Yeah. Without plugging my own stuff too much. Plug it, plug it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, for some of the listeners, I'm sure, you know, you've probably heard of something like a mutual action plan, right? Which is kind of like what I said, like the first starter of this. It's essentially just a document that a sales rep will create with the buyer to outline what the sale process looks like, what next steps need to be done, the scope, etc. That's like the first level of that collaboration, right? Unfortunately, most teams are doing this through like Google Docs or email right now. By taking software and enabling that, we're going to start seeing a lot more success from the sales team side, especially when you start tying in insights and data, right? And knowing that if you can position the next step to be three days out instead of a week out, and that's going to help your close rate or including three pieces of content instead of two pieces of content, all of this will be actionable insights that sales teams could use to drive the deals forward, right? Yeah. I think like it's it's really important because what I used to do is before every POC is I'd have a POC document that I'd go over with the prospect saying, okay, here's what a successful POC would look like typically for us. Now, do these make sense to you? Yes. Okay. What would you like to add like that would need to be successful or what would you like to remove from this and get their interaction and get their vision on it so that they actually are building it with me and then say, okay, so you agree that if, if after this POC, this, all these check the boxes, then, then you're good to move forward, right? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And that's what like the most innovative teams right now, you know, it's funny, we work with a bunch of really tough companies, but what the literally before, you know, obviously using us, what they were doing is doing it all through Google Sheets. And it's like, yeah. it's 2019, there has to be a better solution. So, but <laughs> it's a good start, right? And if you're not doing something, start looking into those POCs because you do want this mutual collaboration and co-ownership, right? It makes them more invested, more likely to actually act on it. I mean, at the end of the day, if you can make it easier for them to buy your software, you're going to win more deals. It's common sense. Yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate for you. And I know what the answer is, but I, I want to make dialogue here and, and, and tell you that, you know, you just said it yourself. You want to make it easy for them to buy. And, and going through one of these processes actually makes it harder to buy because it adds some resistance, no? Good question. I would say no. If you're going through this process in the first place, then one of two things is happening. One, you're probably selling a pretty large deal, right? Let's say twenty, fifty thousand $50,000 minimum. Or two, there's already seven different people on the buying side that have to sign off on this traditionally. Right? Like the average B2B sale requires sign off from 6.8 stakeholders. And that's just on the buying side. Then you have, you know, solution architects and customer success managers on the sales side. It's, I mean, it's a clusterfuck at the end of the day. So no, removing the friction is what that plan is all about. Yeah. And also another thing is that when you do something like this, because so many times you'll just be like, oh yeah, you want to, you want the trial? Okay. I'll turn it on for you. But then they're not even actually ready to to test it and then so what ends up happening after one week two weeks however long your trial is well 
hey, we, we didn't get to test it. Can we, can we turn it on again? And you're just chasing your tail. Oh, exactly. And I mean, the worst thing that you can have is not getting the sale. It's starting a POC and not having it be successful, right? Because you were either yeah. premature or you didn't like actually map out what success looks like at the end of the day. Yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've made that mistake several times earlier on in my career. I was, I was just too excited. Oh, this is a big deal. Let's close yeah. it. <laughs> Me too. I mean, it, it, I'm a slow learner. So it took, yeah. it took quite a while, but yeah. Absolutely. And I think also people will value the trial period more when you have to work on it. Exactly. And I mean, also all of this is really like contingent on the fact that they want to buy something just as equally as like you want to sell it to them. Right. If if you're shoving <laughs> things down people's throats, yeah. you may have to take a step back and like focus on why, but that's gonna give you bigger issues in the first place. So Yeah, if you provide enough value, they're they're they want it just as bad because it's making their life easier. Exactly. I mean sales should be mutually beneficial, right? And in fact, I think the buyer should have a disproportionate benefit to you when they're buying whatever product you're getting. Yeah. All right. Anything else on the on the future of sales that you think that things are changing? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really excited, obviously, about like automation and machine learning, and I, I know a lot of people get scared about that, but I see it still as just being a tool or like enablement for the good reps. I don't see a good SDR, a good account executive, being replaced by machine learning. I mean, we can barely you know have it write an email right now. It's maybe that'll change in the next couple of years, but. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about, you know, other, maybe there's other products in different niches outside of sales that can also make their way into sales. I don't know what those are, but I'm sure like we live in a really exciting time right now where there's more startups being launched on a daily basis than any time in history. And I think that's a net positive overall. Yeah, absolutely. There's all this automation. I, I know as a sales rep myself, Everybody says like, no, you can't automate everything because it makes it so impersonable. But it's it's yes and no. Like it has to be a fine line because automation makes my life easier. It makes me like 10 times more efficient. <laughs> I don't have to send those follow-up emails. I could just click a button and it will automatically follow up if they don't respond. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You can use the automation to drive more personalization, right? So like- yeah by automating the bullshit that you don't want to do, you can then spend more time crafting these emails or finding, uh, you know, your ideal customers. It's, I, I think, again, it's a net positive, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Go. Cool. I understand that you're fundraising right now. Is that correct? Yeah, fun process, let me tell you. <laughs> so can we explore a little bit about some things that you've learned while fundraising and some tips that you may have? Yeah, absolutely. You know, people tell you a lot of things and then until you go through it, sometimes you just don't, it doesn't hit you, but it's funny. So we're raising our first round. We've been bootstrapped up until this point. The entire fundraising process is very much like a sale, right? It's the same exact thing. You create a list of, you know, potential investors, let's call them prospects. You create a pitch deck, just like a sales deck, which tells the story and why your product is so great. And then you call them, you harass them, you try and get introductions to them, and then you pitch them and you try and follow up with them. It's literally the exact same thing as a sales process. So that's been great to see. Hopefully some of my strengths play in. And <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty much the exact same process so far that I'm seeing. But 
with more of like a, you know, I don't want to say sheep mentality, but really like the social proof and following the curve uh, that investors do. What do you mean by that? So apparently everyone that I've talked to says once you get your first investor, you then all of a sudden get your third and fourth, <laughs> which I guess plays, you know, very similar to sales. Like if you land a big customer, all of a sudden people are going to trust you more and you're going to have more social proof around it. But I think it's more skewed towards VCs and investors. Yeah. All right. And I think it's so true. You know, I, I help some of my clients go and pitch to investors. And it's so true. You know, they all, all say, I'm not a salesman. I'm not a salesman. But then they, they go and pitch and they're going pitching and they just, they're afraid of actually selling to potential clients, but they're okay to go and sell to investors. Well, it, it's the same thing, a different dollar amount, different product. Like you're still selling your product, but not in a, in a different way. Why are you so scared of it? Well, and it, it's funny. <laughs> I mean, you bring up a, such a good point that it's actually scarier, I think, and more and harder to get money from funders or investors because you're asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, whereas like your product could cost a couple grand, right? Exactly. Because with at least when you're selling to your clients, you have a pain point that you're solving. When you're so selling to investors, it's an investment. It's a business decision. It's all, it's all numbers. Am I going to make this money? Is the risk reward ratio there good? Okay, done. And do I want to work with this person for the next five to 10 years? Right? Which, yeah, absolutely. And when they're buying your product, they can cancel anytime. <laughs> absolutely. So what are some of your tips for that you found to really help you when, when pitching to investors? Yeah, take this all with this grain of salt, considering we're only like two weeks in and we're hopefully trying to finish everything in the next four weeks. But warm introductions seem to be key, you know, doing as much of the work up front, you know, really like we spend time creating a list of we, we really don't want money. We want money and connections and long term partnerships. That's been key to us. So finding people who understand your value, like me selling you know, collaboration and sales, you know, project management software to someone who only invests in bio, you know, or like pharmaceutical probably is not going to make sense. But working with companies that do see that like or have experience working in enterprise, that's going to make it. So like target the people that are going to be receptive to your message would be my tips. And then also leverage your network as much as you possibly can. Yeah. What about making your sales deck, your pitch deck and, and your sales deck? What what are some tips around there? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have a new version every other day. Literally, we're just like <laughs> constantly revamping it. You know, put it out there early. Like, don't wait for the perfect pitch deck. Just like in sales, get something out there and just focus on that narrative. There's a lot of resources out there. You know, Sequoia has a great guide. YC, obviously, like they tell you how to create these pitch decks. But really focus on the, the, the story because your product is probably not going to be there and your revenue is probably not going to be there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be fundraising and, you know, focus on the big picture. And that's been really good feedback for us so far. Good tips. So are you using any sales tools to help you with uh, finding an investor? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously uh, CRMs. So we have our Salesforce lined up. We're using outreach to automate a lot of that. We have, what else? Obviously, I'm using Zoom to hop on calls and run people through. We're using DocSend to like track the links. You know, pretty standard like sales tech tools are all like registering pretty well with like the fundraising yeah. process. Like literally, I'm grabbing, we're also using Lead IQ, grabbing their emails, throwing them in drip campaigns and sequences, 
and just like following up and harassing people. Yeah, so, so it's exactly like outbound sales. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I wish it was so... inbound sales, but we can't be there yet. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if it was just that easy? <laughs> yeah. Only when you get to a certain stage, then then the tables turn. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Slack right now has no issues raising capital. So. Yeah. yeah. One of the companies I, I worked at previously, I remember I was their first salesperson and now they have people knocking on the door, like a line around the corner. Hey, we want to invest. We want to invest. Yep. <laughs> it's funny how that works so, out. Absolutely. So let's go back to, to your days as sales leader and sales manager. What are some of the the things that are your biggest challenges that you found when, when managing an early stage team? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the biggest challenges I had to work through was just this like complete, I guess, like shift in focus of like, I've been doing it. Why can't you just go and do it? Like literally like sometimes you just need to shut up and, you know, like hit the pavement and do your job. And like for me, building that empathy took a long time and realizing like, okay, you know, people have different strengths, different weaknesses and like coaching through the why sometimes was probably the hardest part versus, you know, here's like a script, go follow it, right? Like you don't want to create that kind of team. Obviously scripts I think are incredibly beneficial, but you need to figure out why you're saying those things in, in the proper way or, or why that script is created the right way. And a lot of that sometimes is pretty difficult, but on the flip side, like sometimes you know, especially in sales, like I don't think salespeople get fired. I think salespeople fire themselves. It's one of the few professions where you pretty much get to control your destiny 80 to 90% of the time. Yeah. And I, and I truly believe that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that kind of goes with any job, no? I mean, either you're putting the effort in or you're, you're really pushing yourself and you've got that drive to do a good job. Yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of industries, like for example, I know marketers who have had great success and yeah, they probably can't attribute too much of actual output for what they've put in, right? Like it's a lot of it is guesswork and, you know, obviously that's not for true for everyone, but there are a lot of industries, you know, if you're working in government, like I know people who will probably never get fired regardless of their output. Whereas in sales- <laughs> well, That's because you're a government. <laughs> exactly. Right. Whereas in sales, like- you eat what you kill. And if you don't hit your quota a couple times in a month or a couple times in a row, you're probably not going to be a great fit. Yeah. I think what you said though about empathy and is so important to being a manager. It's it's also one of the, like the most important skills as a salesperson, but also a manager, like understanding that they, they come from a different background than you. They have different knowledge than you because for you, it's it's common sense, but if they've never been in that situation or the experience that you have, then it's not common sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, I mean, for me, what I realized, you know, really like the two elements that I think everyone, if you have these two, you're probably going to be successful. One is just good work ethic and two is coachability. Like if you give me almost anyone that has those two elements, you can make them, they may not be an A plus player, but they'll be a B plus, A minus, and they will do all right. And everyone will be happy. Yeah. Have you read the book, Everyone Sells by Daniel Pink? I did uh, forever ago. So he has a good way of like exercise uh, for, for working on empathy that I, I love to use. And what it does is it's like a conversation with a guy from the past, 
or whatever you want to call it. And so what you do is you, you sit two people next to each other and one person tries to explain a telephone to the other person who came from the past, so a hundred years ago. And so what it really makes you do is like having to put yourself in that person's shoe. Like they don't know what electricity is. They don't know, you know, you know, like you've got all this stuff, like what's a battery? How does this work? How does, and it really makes you put yourself in their shoes and, and think about their side of the thing, which so often doesn't happen even as a salesperson. Absolutely. That's, I mean, it's such a good point, right? And it's because I think it's that, that empathy and like that leadership quality of understanding and being able to put yourself in their shoes that ultimately like that's what people love about their managers, right? Like, yeah, obviously learning and, you know, growth is going to be great, but being able to be understood, I think goes so far. Absolutely. At the end of the day, that's what everybody wants is to be understood and to feel part of something. Yeah, absolutely. What's one of the biggest mistakes you've made as a, as a sales leader? Oh, where to begin? <laughs> you could you could list a few. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking. I mean, obviously, so much, right? But I, I think one of the biggest things that I learned at my previous role was like tempering expectations and going in a little bit pessimistic when doing tests. I'm still guilty of this to this day, where like I get really excited and really hyped up about stuff, especially if it's new. Where I'm like, oh, we're going to do this new campaign. It's going to convert super high, and it's you know we're going to Go to the moon. Always an optimistic. Yeah, which is great. And it it served me really well in sales. But 99% of the time, that's not how it works out, right? So like setting, I think, you know, plan for the best, prepare for the worst has been kind of like my new motto where I want to just like, okay, whatever expectation we're having, let's cut it in half. If not, you know, take 10% of it. And more often than not, that gives a little bit more of a realistic like standpoint for how it's actually going to look. And then if it, if it blows it out of the water, great. Like it's, it's, I think it's all about setting those expectations. Like a recent realization that I had has been, you know, most of my suffering, I think, in life really does come from the misalignment between my expectations and reality. And like at the end of the day, those expectations were honestly just things that like I just came up with on a whim with no actual backing. Right? I was like, oh well, it should be this way because I think it should be. And yeah, not again that's going to lead you to suffering and going through that pain and, you know, backtracking and looking like an idiot when something, you know, doesn't perform the way it does. So what are ways that you, you would help your team set expectations? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, obviously using historical data and numbers as much as you possibly can, you know, what are other companies that have done this? What have they seen from a success? What have we seen from a success with similar projects or tangential products? You know, taking the emotion out of it as much as possible and really just diving into the numbers, using data and metrics and, you know, really trying to forecast like without any emotion would be my recommendation. Sounds easy when you just say it, but it's, it's hard. It's it difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, because we, I mean, we become invested, right? And especially when you're working on a team, it's like, this is your idea all of a sudden. And again, you know, have that empathy and take a step back and, you know, remove the ego from it, I think would would be very beneficial. Absolutely. What's your favorite sales or leadership book? Ooh, I love influence. Yeah. I, yeah? I think, yeah, I make every new hire read it. It's, I mean, I, I think it just applies to the world so much. And like, I, I'd say influence is probably my favorite 
just like pure on sales book. And then obviously spin selling would be a close second. Okay. Interesting. I, I haven't actually read uh, Influence, but it's come up a couple of times. I need oh. to add it to my list. Yeah. I mean, it's like six principles, Robert Caldini. Uh, you could probably get through it in like a day. It just reads super easy and huge takeaway. So. Excellent. Is there somebody that you follow for sales or leadership advice? Yeah. I think you actually had him on a guest. Jeremy Donovan over at Sales Loft has been great. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually been in talks a little bit. Recently, he's also in New York. Yeah, the, the Gong.io team is great. They Amit up, has also been on the show. Awesome. The co-founder. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jason Lemkin, I think, kills it from a Saster model. You know, huge fan of his. Jason, if you're watching this, talk to me about investing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think anyone that's, not anyone, but most people that are VP of sales at like some of the tech top tech companies right now are really going to know their shit and I would recommend following. Now, I, I didn't want to ask this during the, the call, but I'm, I'm curious because you, you hinted towards it a couple of times. How are you doing the communication differently than just using a Google Docs at Recapt? Yeah. So I guess for anyone not super familiar, so Recapt is like project management for B2B sales teams to collaborate with their customers. So to answer your question, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? First off, what data are you collecting in Google Docs? Probably not a lot, right? You get to see like if someone's actively in it or if they left a note, but that's about it. So that's yeah. one big aspect of it. And then really that tying in and integrating with Salesforce and other CRMs, like Google Docs doesn't do that, right? I'm sure you could probably jerry-rig something with Zapier possibly, but really the biggest portion of it is setting next steps, right? And this would be my big advice for anyone listening. If you're not ending a sales call, with setting clear next steps, you probably just wasted that sales call, right? Yeah. So you need to figure out what needs to be done, who needs to do it, when they need to do it, why they need to do it, right? All of these things need to be outlined clearly. Sure, you could put that in an email or you could put that in a Google Doc, but having someone actually take ownership and co-create that with you is incredibly powerful. Funny enough, going back to you know influence, that's one of the principles that they touch on, Right. If you can make someone consistent, to get involvement, to get involvement, to get someone to be consistent, if they say they're going to do something, they're much more likely actually going to do it. Yeah, and and having them actually not just say they're going to do something, but take a step and like even whether it's clicking a button on your system or whatever, it really like emphasizes it and and it puts it subconsciously in their head. Exactly. I mean, I think the number one reason why deals end up being stalled or being lost is momentum, right? Yeah. And also like why deals close. Like if you have that momentum going, you will just breeze through and you will close it. Obviously it's easier said than done. But again, if you can make the buying experience incredibly simple, it's going to win you more deals, right? Like look at what Amazon did. I mean, they literally removed all friction with one click buy. Like it literally yeah. does not get easier than that. And that's why I don't know about you, but I have 20 packages, you know, that come every month from Amazon for shit I don't need because they've <laughs> removed all the friction. So if you can do that in your sales process and map out their buying process, you're going to see a lot of success. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's amazing and a, a great way to keep that momentum. If if you're challenged, if you're a company and you're listening to this and you're, if it's, you're having a hard time getting the momentum moving forward, then definitely start to implement something like this. It's It's huge. Mark, I really appreciate you coming on and, and joining us today. Is, is there a good way that people could reach out to you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to be a part of it. You've had some amazing guests. Just happy to be Thank a part you. of the lineup. So LinkedIn, I think obviously I'm, I pretty much accept anyone and everyone. If you want to email me, it's just mark at recapped.io. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. It's Mark Fersh. And I think that covers everything. But if you really want to get a hold of me, email me, You know, book some time on my calendar. I try and give back as much as I possibly can because through this journey, people have been incredibly helpful and you know open to hopping on calls with me. So I want to put give that back as much as I possibly can. Excellent. I appreciate that. And uh, we'll put your LinkedIn on the show notes as well so that it's easy for people to reach out. Beautiful. Cool, Mark. Thanks a bunch. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.